Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence and Loom help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Before we start, just a heads up. As you might expect, there's some violence and adult language in here, so if you've got kids around, you may want to throw on some headphones first. Thanks. From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, I'm Ellie Honig, and this is Up Against the Mob. One of the most important moments of any criminal trial is the defense attorney's cross-examination of the cooperating witness. Now, things often look bleak for the defendant at that moment. The cooperator has just spent hours, sometimes even days, answering questions from the prosecutor about his own life of crime, sure, and also the defendant's life of crime. If you simply stopped every criminal trial right at this moment, 99% would result in conviction. So when the defense lawyer stands up to start his cross-examination, he's got a big job. Chip away at the cooperator, show the jury he's a horrible guy, a liar, a scumbag, not to be liked or believed or even acknowledged. And there's this one fairly standard line of cross-examination that some defense lawyers like to start with. How many times have you met with the prosecution team to prepare for this trial? The defense lawyer asks. I don't know, 10, 15, the response will usually come from the cooperator. 10 or 15, the defense lawyer will repeat incredulously as if he's shocked to learn that prosecutors prepare witnesses for trial. And how long were each of these 10 to 15 sessions with the prosecutor? The defense lawyer will ask, his ire slowly rising. Usually most of the day, say six or eight hours each. Six to eight hours each, the defense lawyer will shout meaning you've spent about 100 hours working with the prosecutor to get ready for your testimony? Yep, sounds about right. The properly prepared cooperator will testify. And by the way, we'd always prepare cooperators for exactly this line of cross-examination. And then the defense lawyer goes in for the contrast-making kill. So you've spent 100 hours with the prosecutor, but you and me, Mr. Cooperator, we've never even met until right now. Isn't that so? Usually the cooperator shrugs his shoulders and says, I guess not. Defense point made. You've spent a ton of time working with the prosecutor, but you and I are total strangers. Fairly effective opening of a cross-examination, unless it goes awry, which I only saw happen one time. In one of my trials, the defense lawyer was, I won't say a mobster himself. He wasn't Italian, so he could never be made. But let's just say he was a bit too close with some of the guys he shouldn't have been hanging out with. And he seemed to relish the mob lifestyle and want to be part of it himself, even in some small way. Now, the cooperator had just spent days telling the jury about how many crimes he committed with the defendant, often coordinated from their main hangout, a social club in New York City. These are basically storefronts where they hung out and committed crimes or planned crimes. And they called this one simply the club. Mobsters and wannabes of all types would filter in and out of the club looking to be part of the action. So this defense lawyer starts in with the usual opening of his cross-examination of the cooperator. How long have you spent meeting with prosecutors? How many days? How many hours? And the rest. And the defense lawyer gets all the usual answers, many days, many hours. And then the defense lawyer in this one case goes in for the kill. And you and me, Mr. Cooperator, we've never met, have we? The jurors turn their heads towards the cooperator. Now, usually this is when the cooperator simply says, nope, never met you before. But in this one case, the cooperator looked puzzled. 
He made a face that I can only describe as a, what are you kidding me? Face at the defense lawyer. And then the cooperator says to the defense lawyer right in front of the jury, no, I've seen you hanging out at the club a bunch of times. If there was a live audience there, it would have reacted like when Michael Jordan used to dunk over some seven foot stiff. Oh, it couldn't possibly have gone worse for the defense lawyer. Not only did the jurors laugh with the cooperator and at the defense lawyer, but now the jurors all knew the truth that the lawyer himself was a bit of a mafia wannabe. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, that one lawyer was a bit of a buffoon and that one moment backfired on him badly. But for the most part, Defense lawyers are fantastic beyond description at their jobs. Many are genius at finding the cracks, exploiting the holes, and challenging assumptions. I've seen defense lawyers pull off brilliant cross-examinations, expose witnesses who had once seemed credible as highly questionable, pull out acquittals or hung juries where I never thought they could. But I've also seen these guys make grievous mistakes, come up flat, drop the ball. Defense lawyering is like any other profession, I guess. You've got your superstars and you got your tomato cans and everything in between. Notice I didn't say mob lawyers. That's because most guys hate it when you use that phrase. They'll take offense. Believe me, I've seen it. I'm not a mob lawyer, they'll protest. I'm a defense attorney. Okay, you might respond, but you do represent a lot of mobsters, kind of makes you a mob lawyer. Trust me, I've had these exchanges. They don't end well. Call them what you want, but I can call them a mile away. Whenever I was getting ready to do a takedown, a large number of arrests all at once, 15 or 20 or 25 defendants, I'd always joke with my case partners and the FBI agents that I'd be able to predict exactly which lawyers we'd be seeing in court the next day at the arraignments. It never failed. New indictment, new slate of mobster defendants, same old roster of tried and true mob lawyers. Our guest today is one of the best lawyers I ever dealt with. Murray Richmond is a legend in New York legal circles. He has practiced for over 50 years. Yes, 50 years, and he is still going strong today. Murray has seen it all. He has handled thousands of cases, hundreds of criminal trials. He has represented celebrities, including Jay-Z, DMX, Ja Rule, Lil Wayne. And over the years, Murray has represented mobsters, from all five families at every level, bosses on down the line. Murray and I had several cases against each other, me as prosecutor, him as defense lawyer, including a murder trial where I prosecuted and Murray defended the acting boss of the Genovese family. I'll leave you in suspense for now about how that one came out. Murray himself even faced criminal charges, United States versus Murray Richmond, many years ago and went to trial and I'll leave you guessing about how that one ended too. If you've ever seen the great TV show, Better Call Saul, well, get ready to meet the real life version. Don't worry, Murray. Murray Richmond, welcome. Thank you for joining me today. My pleasure, Ellie. So let me start with this because there, there's, there's varying opinions out there in the world and on the internet. The TV show, Better Call Saul, is that show actually based specifically on you and you've been known as Don't Worry Murray, or is it just a coincidence? It's not based upon me, per se. I believe that there are certain episodes that may have some uh, suggestion of that effect. The name Don't Worry Murray existed long before Better Call Saul. Absolutely. That I can vouch for. It's been in existence in over 56 years. Who gave you that? Who, who came up with that name for you, Don't Worry Murray? I got to tell you, I got a half a dozen guys uh, wise guys, mostly, who say that they deserve the credit for that. Recently, Evelyn and I were down in Florida, and we were having dinner with one of those guys, and he said, I gave you that name. And I said, no, you didn't, Vinny boy. You didn't give me that name. He said, no, I gave you that name. I said, you and a half a dozen other wise guys. On that note, you talk about wise guys. Do you have any problem with being referred to as a, quote, mob lawyer? You know, I think it's a, a misnomer at this point. I've gotten that name because there's a period of time that I represented all the various proposed families that exist, but it's not exclusive, and it's not only those kind of that kind of work. I've represented many, many people. I represent persons in all ethnic groups. They call me a mob lawyer only because it sounds better than anything else. You grew up in the Bronx in the 40s. 
And you've talked about what it was like growing up in that neighborhood. Can you describe your neighborhood sort of in terms of the ethnic and racial mix and, and how this led to you going down the road of law? I don't want to you to perceive that the Bronx at that time was a massive slum. It was not. I grew up in a place called Cretona Park. I lived opposite a park. It's supposed to be, at this time, one of the highest crime rates areas in the city of New York. At that time, it was a beautiful place. It was a series of apartment buildings. We had friends in the apartment building, all five stories. No no elevators, by the way. If you had elevators, you were rich. In fact, when I first got married, to be quite candid with you, my building, my first building was a building with an elevator in it, and I thought I hit the big time. You grew up as the middle of three brothers, you said, and spent your days in the streets. Well, look, you had nothing else. You had a two-bedroom apartment where three brothers lived in one room, and your mother and father lived in the other room. My father was a house painter, immigrant status. My mother was an immigrant. My father didn't become a citizen until 1965. He was a hardworking guy. During the Second World War, notwithstanding the fact that he was Jewish, he was still an enemy alien because he was born in Romania. And Romania was a, was a foreign country working on the side of Germany. We were not a family that had. None of the people had anything going for them. It was an ethnically mixed neighborhood. There was a lot of Jewish kids. There was Irish kids. A lot of Italian kids, African-American kids, a lot. Very great number of Puerto Rican kids. And we all hung out together. It was quite common. And that's what led me into the, working in the streets. Because initially, I have a degree in social work as well. And I became a social worker and worked with the youth board. In 1958, I joined the youth board. In 59, I joined the youth council bureau of the district attorney's office working in the courts with young kids who got uh, jammed up. I went to law school right after that because my partner in the youth council bureau was a guy named Joe Galliber, who went on to become a state senator. And uh, so as a result, we were both went to law school at the same time and we studied uh, for the bar. And that's how I became an attorney. I'm in the court system 61 years. Where did you go to law school and, and when did you graduate it? 1964, New York Law School. It was so long ago, they called it New Amsterdam Law School. Oh, is that right? No, I just made that up. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh I feel stupid for falling for that. <laughs> uh, good one, though. Um, your first law practice was physically where? In the back of a travel agency in the South Bronx on Wilkins Avenue, which no longer exists. It was literally in back of a travel agency. You've said before that you kept a bottle of scotch on your desk. Uh, why was that? It was literally frontier law. <laughs> what do you mean by that? You know, you were scratching out for a living. Yeah, if you made $100, you, you made a score. You know, this is not one of those law schools where you graduated and went to a firm and where you did nothing but look, you know, look like you were doing something and build by the hour. And remember that in those days, they didn't hire Jewish guys into uh, the firms. And I, I graduated second in my class and didn't even get an offer. And so I went out on my own, which is fine with me. The day after I was admitted to the bar, I opened up my office. So where would you go? I mean, how would you actually hustle up cases for yourself? I totally enjoyed that. It was, it was an adventure. It was uh, terrific. At first, you had to get comfortable with what you were doing. I would take anything at the time. A ceiling falling in a L&T case, that's landlord and tenant, a uh, negligence case of any kind, a small criminal case. But I knew I was always interested in crime because I had spent all those years in the criminal courts as a social worker, watching lawyers try their cases, getting the feel for it. But then I went bouncing. I would go to bars, restaurants, clubs, and it became the thing to do. On a Friday night, I'd go bouncing from one club to another. And I'd pick up a case here and a case there. And before you know it, I was a lawyer for all the guys in the South Bronx, then the North Bronx, and then in Manhattan and in Westchester. And I built it. So, so you would you would pick up cases from bars, clubs, uh, pool oh, rooms, sure. that kind of thing? Oh, yeah. You know, one of the good ways you meet these people, you get around, you're walking around, you meet the guys, the numbers runners, the, the guys who the small-time bookmakers. And that's where you cut your eye teeth on. And um, there, there was a regular income. Every day, somebody's getting pinched for bookmaking. Every day, somebody's getting pinched for numbers. You know what numbers is? Mutual racehorse policy play based upon the uh, racehorse at a particular track, usually Hialeah. I tell you this because I recently cross-examined a FBI supposed expert on gambling. And this was a case just this past year. And he testified and he was supposed to be the expert. And I questioned him about 
how he became an expert. He says, well, he'd been doing this for 40 years or 30 years, whatever the hell, how, how long he was doing it. And he was saying that he knows all of the methods by which people gamble. So I said, then you must know what a mutual resource policy play is. So he said, oh, yes, policy. I said, how do you get the handle? And he said, you get it from the newspapers. I says, yeah, well, how is it determined? Oh, can I answer that, Murray? I think I know. Go right ahead. It's like the last three numbers of the payout or something. Mm -hmm. You're wrong. Oh, (laughs) all right. Go ahead. You set me straight. Okay. Okay. It's not the last three numbers per se. You remember the numbers are determined individually. The first number comes out at approximately one o'clock in the afternoon because that takes the first, second, and third race. You take the handle and the total from the first, second, and third race, and the last number of the three numbers you mentioned, it becomes the first number of the day, and that's called a bleeder. And then subsequently, the second number comes out at four o'clock in the afternoon, and that comes out, and that's also a bleeder. So you can bet on two numbers rather than three. Generally speaking, there's three numbers. Subsequently, when the last number comes out shortly thereafter, then you have the number for the day. But they're not necessarily coordinated from the newspapers alone, but you can direct it from the newspapers. The expert didn't know that, and the judge found them not to be an expert. Wow. Oh, you got him just decommissioned right there as an expert. Right there on the spot. I don't think I've ever seen that happen, uh, but that, that that's a, you know, next time the government needs an expert on gambling, I, I guess maybe you'd be available to testify. I don't think I'd be available for the government. <laughs> no, I don't think that would work. Um, so, but George Rossi was your first case, sort of with a big time major, major. Yeah, tell us about that case. George Rossi uh, was a he was a titular owner of a bar, a bar and a nightclub called the Robin Hoy, and the Robin Hoy was a bar and restaurant with a Chinese motif, and business wasn't good, and apparently uh, it, there was a connection between persons of uh, say organized crime, and George Rossi was arrested walking out of the establishment with certain gasoline cans and a place on fire. Okay. Who who was the place affiliated with? What family? Allegedly, at that particular point, it was Lucchese family. In fact, that's where I had met Carmine Tremonti. Carmine Tremonti was the alleged boss of that family back in the early 70s. Kind of liked him a lot. Terrific guy. Terrific guy. I mean, it. Carmine Tremonti, boss of the Lucchese family. You're, you're going on record saying he was a terrific guy. I'm going to say I got some lovely letters from him from jail. He died in jail, by the way. Okay. So uh, we tried the case, the arson case, and we got an acquittal. How did you beat this case if George Rossi is caught walking out of a burning building with ga- holding gas cans? You know, I don't want to, you know, make it seem as simple as that. It wasn't where he's walking out and police snagged him as he was leaving. He was walking out of the building and there was gas cans in his car. The police stopped him and they said that there's a direct connection. But again, here we have expert witnesses as being the cause of the entire problem. They had a fire marshal who allegedly said that this was caused with an accelerant. And the basis of how he found it be caused by his smell and by the what they call alligatoring, when you have a, a fire caused where uh, an accelerant is burned, it's not the accelerant itself that burns, but the fumes, which causes an unusual edge along the uh, fire markings. But they were unable to determine whether or not it, it was an accelerant of gasoline or anything else. Subsequently, we were able to establish from another expert that it was a, fi- a fire that could have been caused by an electrical short. And absent the direct connection between the cause of the fire and the uh, person involved was charged with the fire, and there was no basis to show that George Rossi was benefiting in any way, the jury found him not guilty. So you won this mob case essentially by getting the better of the technical experts. Yeah. An interesting aspect of that. That's where I, we hit the jackpot. Uh, that night, it was, a, it was a jury that came in at 10 o'clock on a Friday night. In those days, we worked late. My office was waiting for their verdict. And then as soon as the verdict came in, we called Next thing I knew, I got a call from Tremonti and some other people involved, and we were out for the evening. We went bouncing. You went out that night with the boss of the Lucchese family to yeah. celebrate the not guilty verdict. It was it was a great feeling. Great. You're on top of the world. I'm a young man, starting out, literally starting out my practice, maybe five years or six years into it, and you hit the jackpot. And you hit the jackpot because everybody saw you with him. 
and you walked into a, a, a packed club. You know, we went into a place called the Golden Hour, and that was a place that existed up in the Bronx. There was literally 400 people there. We walked in, and as we walked in, the band that was on top of the bar played the theme from The Godfather. It was, <laughs> it was ironic. It was the very year that The Godfather had come out. And uh, there I was, and it's a very heady response. You get, you get full of yourself. Look, a lot of this is ego. You know that as well as I do. You can't get up in front of a jury and believe that what you're telling them and, and convince them that you're doing something without having some degree of knowledge as to what you're doing and feeling that you can convince them. I, I will not disagree with you on that. In terms of juries, nobody can tell you. We tried a case together, you and I. Yes. And I told you this then, and I'll tell you this now. The best summation I have ever seen by a prosecutor was you. And that was one of the reasons I agreed to do this with you, because of my respect for you. I didn't expect it out of you. I thought, you know, you're just another nice guy, young U.S. attorney, who's going to bullshit me half the way through. And you got up there and kicked ass. And that was impressive. And I told you that. I said that. And I even turned to your father, who was sitting in the audience. I said, that's one goddamn about the words I, I used. And I told him how well I felt about your summation. That's why I'm here. Murray, thank, that, that, you know that means so much to me, and now, now we've said it on the record, and that'll go on my resume and maybe my tombstone someday that, that you've given but me But it's that, true. And I, I tell you, Ellie, I've tried over 400 jury trials to date, and I'm, I'm not sure I want to try any more, to be quite candid with you. But, but the fact of the matter is, and I've seen a lot of prosecutors, some very impressive guys, some guys who think they're very impressive, some guys who become mayors in the, our city of New York. For example, uh, you know who I'm talking about. Hypoth hypothetically speaking. Yeah, no, of course. Rudy Giuliani, yep. Could not shine your shoes on that one. <laughs> wow. Uh, I, I am humbled. Thank you for that, Murray. That, that is but great. Don't be so, too humble. Don't get crazy about it. I, I know. I want to talk a bit about that case in a bit. But first, there's a fascinating chapter in your career where you, Murray Richmond, got indicted and tried by the feds in, in the 1970, late 1970s. Tell 1978. Us about the trial started January 10th, 1978, and completed February 9th. Four weeks on trial. Who, who charged you and what was the charge? Southern District of New York. Okay. Uh, who charged me? It was I, and along with four other people. One of them was State Senator Joseph Gallagher, the person I mentioned earlier. Another another person who subsequently became a state senator, Ephraim Gonzalez, and others. And we went through a very difficult time. And the charge was that we had, it was really based on a windfall profit. We had purchased a piece of property from the Hebrew home for the aged. And uh, here it comes in where the lack of street smarts on the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, held them to a bad situation. They didn't even understand what a closing was all about. And they didn't understand the tax consequences. I bought it and allegedly sold it the same day. The fact is I actually went into contract nine months before, held the property to closing because there's a window of opportunity in the state tax law between January 25th and March 12th that you can have a non-taxable transfer from one charitable organization to another without taking tax consequences. And that's exactly what they did. But it looked like it was a transfer the same day. But it took nine months in doing it. And they didn't grasp it, but they were more interested in taking taking me down and taking a couple of state senators down. And they didn't do a, their homework. And it was sloppy. How did that feel to, to see an indictment? I mean, you've seen thousands upon thousands of indictments, but United States versus your name versus Murray Richmond. What did that feel like for you? It was one of the most traumatic experiences one can imagine. There could be nothing worse. It was literally the United States of America versus me. And it was frightening. And it was devastating. And I stayed awake many a night worrying what will happen to my family. Because one did not necessarily perceive that you would get an acquittal. Did you represent yourself in that case? Well, I didn't intend to do that. I had two attorneys, one of whom literally didn't show up. And the, and the second was uh, was hired for the purpose of giving me background on the law. Like and you I, needed that? I did. To be honest with you, the niceness and the nuance of the federal law, you need somebody who's an expert in that area. 
And in that case, I had Irving Analik, a, a very good lawyer and a very good friend. He's gone now. But I, bought, I did a lot of the examination myself, and I testified. I testified for two days, 12 hours. Wow. Who did your closing argument? Did you do that yourself? I did. Oh, my goodness. Uh, so you stood up in front of the jury and said, here's why I am not guilty. Yeah, and that was it. Let me ask you this. During your trial, the moment when a verdict comes in as a lawyer, and I've been through this many times, you've been through it hundreds of times. I mean, that is a scary moment for the lawyers. Forget about for the actual person. I mean, for the person, the defendant who's about to be a judge, guilty or not guilty, I think I would pass out. I mean, what was that moment like for you when they said, in the case of United States versus Murray Richmond, four person of the jury, how do you find? You do feel like passing out. The lightheadedness you feel is almost, you're holding on, literally holding on to the, to the table in front of you, hoping you don't embarrass yourself. So how did that case come out? Acquitted. Everybody was acquitted. You don't get acquittals in the Southern District, you know that. No, that is very rare to have a non not guilty verdict. So, Murray, I want to talk a little tactics with you, courtroom tactics, because God knows you've had more experience than anybody. Let me talk a little bit with you about jury appeal, because one of, I think, the gifts that you have is the ability to connect with the jury. I've seen a lot well, I was of lawyers- going to tell you. I was going to tell you just about that now in terms of selection of a jury. Look, it's a romance. There's no question. You're charming the jury. You're talking to the jury. You're spending time with them. You're seducing them in every word. And while that jury is your jury, you love them. You watch for them. You see which juror has a cough, and you ask the court officer to get him a a drink. Whatever the case may be, you're on top of that jury. Once the trial is over, you walk out of the case, the juror gets hit by a bus. I wouldn't stop. (laughs) It's it's so true. I mean, you used to be, you used to be like, I was walking in the courtroom today and I and I saw one of the jurors get off the elevator. Oh, what was what was she doing? What did she, you know, right. You're, you're obsessed with the jurors while you're on trial. As soon as they render the verdict, you're like, God, go home. Yeah, and it's real, but you have to watch. What, what do you look for? You want the juries to like you. You're on trial in each, you know, that's the one thing I learned when I myself was on trial. You're on trial in each and every one of the cases. Many times the juror, juror sees you in the role of the defendant. They're going to give that result to you. Sometimes you have a defendant that's so unlikable that you feel like beating him down with a stick and he may not even be guilty. And his very presence will ensure that he will be convicted. And you're right. I mean, the jury typically will not hear the defendant's voice, but they will hear your voice throughout the the trial. Um, Talk to us a bit about your use of of humor with with juries because I know that is a technique that you and and some other uh, attorneys use very effectively. Prosecutors are taught, you know, you're not there to make anyone laugh, you're not there. But but defense lawyers have a different role. A laughing jury is a acquitting jury. They like you, they're going to laugh. I use humor a lot. For example, in the Westchester Premier Theater case, you may have seen that one. I tried it in the Southern District of New York. The judge was Bob Sweet. Wonderful judge. He used to be deputy mayor under Lindsay. And there was a, there was 11 defendants on that case. And it was a big case. It was Water Communications and the Mob. Westchester Community Theater was a theater in uh, White, just think, I think it's on Route 119, where they used to have top-notch entertainment. And they have Sinatra and, and uh, Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr. And the Mob would set up chairs. And both the Mob and Warner Brothers were skimming money off the top. I looked at my client. My client was a tough guy, Mikey Coco. I said, how do I make him different? I'm going to get lost in the shuffle over here. I have 11 defendants. And you couldn't tell the defendants from the uh, wise guys from the uh, business guys. The Warner people looked just like the wise guys. They all had nice sharkskin suits that they all were mixing up. And I said, how am I going to make my guy different? I put him in a farmer gray overalls and a flannel shirt. And he sat there for nine weeks on trial. And he slept throughout the whole trial. And I didn't even bother questioning a single witness. I read my book. And when the judge went down the line, he said, counsel, do you want any questions, Mr. Jones, Mr. Richmond? I would say no questions. About six and a half, seven weeks into the trial, I couldn't sit anymore. My backside was hurting. And there was a witness that had nothing to do with my client. And by the way, I questioned every witness before they went on by talking them in the hallway, which the other lawyers didn't do. I went out in the hallway to chat and talk and find out what he was going to say about my client. 
I went out to talk to this witness. He didn't even know my client. And the judge came down, Mr. Richmond, any questions? And I stood up and said, yes, Your Honor. And he was shocked. It was a stunning thing. And I walked up to the podium slowly. And I said, Mr. Witness, do you know my client? In a whisper. And one of the jurors, almost on cue, said, Counselor, can you speak up? I said, I don't want to wake my client. <laughs> and it broke out in laughter throughout. My client slept throughout the whole thing. The judge looked at it. He had to take a recess. And when they came back, my client was still sleeping. The jury started to laugh again. He declared the end of the day's work, and that was the end of that. The jury came back guilty on everybody. Except Mikey Coco. My client was acquitted. He walked. Wow. And that's a matter of record. He walked. And that was a big case. It was one of the biggest cases we've ever had in the Southern District of New York. That involved water communications. That involved uh, members of the Gambino family. That involved all kinds of groups. And it also gave me the opportunity to meet Frank Sinatra. Oh, tell us about that. <laughs> well, four of us, four of the lawyers wanted to meet Sinatra. We just wanted to meet him. So we said, we, we may use him as a witness. So one of the witnesses on the, one of the defendants on the case was a guy named Louis Porcelli. He was uh, called Louis Dome. Call him Louis Dome because he was bald and he had a big dome. So Louis Dome arranged a meeting when Sinatra was in town. We went to Radio City Music Hall, the four of us, and we met him in, in the back. And he would, we would, we would question him and chat with him. And then he'd say, he say, you guys got tickets for the show? He said, no, Frank. So what happened? He set up four cheers in the back, which is skimming, so that we could see the show. We saw the show. And after the show, he says, what do you got planned? I said, I don't know, Frank. What do you want? We all went to, we all went to dinner to, with him to Louis Dome's place, which was separate tables at 25th and 3rd. And we hung out till 3, 4 o'clock in the morning with him, you know? And we, he was terrific with us. Wonderful. Wait, did you list Frank Sinatra on your witness list? No, nah, it was just nonsense. Uh, okay, I was going to say. <laughs> we, we just wanted to use that as a basis. I was, gonna, I was trying to imagine getting a witness list that says Frank Sinatra on it as a prosecutor. But yeah, okay. Fly with me, we'll fly, we'll fly away. Let me ask you this, Murray. After all these years and all these cases, do you still get butterflies in your stomach when you're about to talk to a jury, when, when you're in that moment of truth? Absolutely. Before the case starts, you doubt yourself. Can I do this? Can I? And as soon as you get up there and open your mouth, you're running. You're there. It's no longer frightening anymore. You've got control. You said, how do you select a jury? You become a juror. I, when I talk to the state court selecting a jury, I get as next to the jury box as I can. I lean into the jury box. I step across the threshold. With a step into the jury box, I rest my leg to show that I am part of them. I'll tell them stories. I'll tell them jokes. I'll, I'll recite the Bible quotations. I'll do anything. Bible's always good to go to. I mean, some, there's always some believers there. And uh, it works. It works. And it's a great story. And it, it's, it's fun. I've described trying a case, especially when it goes successfully, as the most fun you can have with your clothes on. <laughs> uh, I, I guess I'll sign on to that. It's, but it's also, as I think you talked about, Murray, it's a grind, right? I mean, it is stressful and difficult. And, and that moment when you're speaking to the jury is really just sort of the culmination of a lot of grunt work that goes into it. That's the high. You know, I write out, in, for example, my openings and summations, I write out the entire summation. I don't use it, but it helps me. The night before the summation, I spend, I get up at two o'clock in the morning and work through to five, writing out from ladies and gentlemen to thank you. And when I get up before them, I don't even use a note, like yourself. That's the way to do it. And tell me, is there any heavier moment, higher moment than you are when you're addressing the jury? You're flying. You, you, don't, you don't need drugs. I, I've never used a drug in my life. Why do I need a drug when I can get in front of a jury? Completely agree with that. It, it is a rush, a high, like, like you've never felt. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. And by the way, speaking of preparation techniques, you once gave me a great one that I use whenever I can. Which is you, you told me that you would you like to sing if you're in your car driving to a court event to a trial and sing to to loosen up your voice, but to loosen up sort of your spirit as well. Oh yeah, I, my favorite two songs. There's a song done by the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers called "I'm a Criminal Defoyer." That's what I do. It's one of my songs. That's and a song. The, yeah, it is. Okay, can and you sing it? Nah, I can't, all right. I, be about, <laughs> I'm a criminal lawyer. That's what I do. It, it talks about a guy who's walking to court with his young client in a drug case. Then I also sing, Brother, Can You Spare a Dime? 
and which is one of my favorite songs. I've sung it at my daughter's uh, engagement party years ago. But it, I do that to loosen up my voice, get myself relaxed, work myself into a fit. I have a driver, and my driver used to be one of the four cheers uh, in, in the singing group. So he gives me background so- sounds. <laughs> he harmonizes for you. Yeah, he does. He does. <laughs> wow. Well, so so you had a distinct advantage over me there because you're in you're in the privacy of a car with a par- apparently a professional singer to help you. I, the oh no, no, me, I, I'm the professional singer. You're He's the, just right. background. <laughs> He's your backup singer. But f- the problem for me was I took I took the path into the city and then I had to walk through Manhattan. So if I was if I was belting out a song, I think I would have turned some heads. But I do love that piece piece of advice and. Uh, Anyone out there who's in a speaking job should should follow Murray's advice and just sing a little bit before you get out there. You got to you got to be relaxed. The reality is, I got to let me tell you another story. I have a case in front of uh, Bronx Supreme Court. I have six defendants. I have the lead defendant, and it's a it's a uh, cockfighting case. A bunch of Dominicans, and if they and the prosecution wants to go to trial, they have a good case. And you know, cockfighting is a felony, and it's moral turpitude. They would all be thrown out of the country if we don't get a misdemeanor. How am I going to force a misdemeanor? And I really was toying with this. And that weekend, I went shopping with my wife at the time, and there was a three foot cock, literally. Like a, a, a rooster, rooster. A rooster. Yeah, yeah okay. a rooster, yeah. So and it would fold it up. It was just beautiful. It cost me $35. I bought it. And I walked into court the following Monday with my trial bag ready. And the, and this was a big courtroom. It was an all-purpose part. There was 200 people sitting in the audience. They call my case. I step up with my brother lawyers. And I open my bag and I put the cock on the top of the table. And judge uh, looks at me. What's that? I says, Judge, that's my cock, and I need my cock in court. And he looks at me, and he says, what? I says, Judge, that's my cock. And he waves over to the prosecutor, brings the prosecutor over, and says, come up, bring, come up, come up. Give Richmond whatever fuck he wants. Just give it to him. I'm not going to spend six <laughs> weeks listening to his cock. <laughs> listening to his cock humor, more yeah, more the point. <laughs> I got his... I got my misdemeanor, walked out of the courtroom, and that was the end of that. Right. Well, hey, whatever you got to do, right? Yeah. Um, That's a true story, by the way, 100%. Listen, Murray. I wish this were visual. I would bring the, I would bring the perpetrator here. <laughs> what, what happened with the, uh, with the rooster? The three foot. I still have it. It's on the, in my office. It's right on top of the right on top of my library. See, you always keep the proof. I like. Absolutely. I have a whole bunch of little aids like that. I use. I've I've used toy cars to get down on the floor to describe chases. You know, when I zoom it, it's reductio ad absurdum. You reduce it to the absurd, and if you reduce it to the absurd, you you can waste the prosecution's case. You know how stiff most prosecutors are. You, if you reduce it to something that's funny. They'll laugh their ass off and the juries will buy it. Yep. Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence and Loom help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, Trust Atlassian Software for everything from space exploration and green energy to delivering pizzas and podcasts. Whether you're a team of two, 200 or 2 million, or whether your team is around the corner or on another continent altogether, Atlassian Software is built to help keep you all on the same page from start to finish. That way, every one of your teams, from engineering and IT to marketing, HR and legal, can stay connected and move together as one towards shared company-wide goals. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Click, click, click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com.
designed for work. So, Murray, over your career, do you even have any any way to estimate how many mobsters, made guys, and and meaningful associates you've represented? Over a thousand. Wow. Do mob guys understand he's a lawyer? I'm not going to drag him into my criminal activities. You know, I never had that problem. To be honest to God, I never had that problem. Early on in my career, it was during the Manfredi case, I had the foolishness of having a a meeting over my house at the time. And it was 11 defendants. We had 11 lawyers. We met in my house. And subsequently, that night, two of the defendants ended up dead under the Throgsdeck Bridge, Philip D. and Philip J. Manfredi. And my wife, may she rest in peace, said, never again. You don't bring stuff home with you. And you don't. Look, some of the clients you represent, mob guys like every other guy, some of them are good, some are not. Some will lie to you, some will not. Some are decent, as you would say, as much as decent can be, and they, like anybody else. I'll tell you one thing, they're generally speaking more truthful than those legitimate people in our society. How do you mean that? You know, you know where you stand. You talk to a mob guy, he'll tell you, yeah, I did this or I didn't do it. Or I can do this, let's see if we can do it. They never ask you. I have never been asked to do anything wrong. Never. In all the years that you've All the years. Never, nobody ever told me, you know, when I read about the fixing of juries by, by the Gotti case and all that, I, I've never seen that. I've never had part of that. Maybe I'm naive. Maybe I'm foolish. But uh, it's never happened to me. Speaking of the, the way you interact with, with your mob clients, I mean, do you typically have a straightforward conversation with them along the lines of, you've been charged with extorting this bar? Did you do that? You know better. You never ask a question to a client if he committed the crime. Because it's not a question you need know the answer to. Why not? You're, because you're not there to, you're there to defend him. And, be, and if you know the answer, and you know that you're going to have to, may have to put him on the stand or do other things, you can't suborn perjury. And if he tells you he did it, and you put him on the stand, he says he didn't do it, you're suborning perjury. You can't do that. It's a violation of the canon of ethics. And it's not smart lawyering. You intentionally refrain from asking your clients, are you guilty or not? All my clients, whether they're mob or otherwise. I don't want to, I don't care. Yeah. Okay. And I think that's fairly common in the defense world for for, for the reasons you say. So at at some point in your career, you started defending hip hop stars as well. How did that happen? By accident. um, A friend of mine was very much into the hip hop community and he was quite ill. And one of these hip hop guys was charged with rape. And he said, I was not even in town. I don't know how I could have done it. Can you say who it was? Yeah, it was DMX. We don't no. worry, Mary, get you out of jail in a hurry when the government's trying to bury you. You're good. Early. And he said, I was not even in town. But of course, the DA's office knew better. And they were charging him. And they, interestingly enough, in this rape case, we had all the accoutrements of rape, semen stains, etc. We took a DNA process and bam, he was not the guy. And we were able to clearly establish that he was. Initially, the DA got up and said, we have insufficient proof to uh, make the case. I said, just a second. I'm not accepting that as a defense, as a dismissal. I want you to say what the truth is, that he is not the person, not insufficient, that he didn't do it and he could not have done it. And he had, it was it? like pulling, of course they did it, but it was like pulling teeth. They knew it was the truth but they didn't want to seem like that they were just not doing the right thing. And it was a question of ruining a man's career or not. And that that worked. From there, I went on to represent at that particular point, Jay-Z, Shine with the, with Puffy. Murray, we, we talked about earlier that you and I had, had several cases together over the years uh, when I was an organized crime prosecutor. And we, we tried one case together or versus one another, however, however you want to That's one case, even, your, even anybody listening to this, will know the end result of that case because one one of the defendants on that case is the guy who killed Whitey Bulger in jail. Yes, that was uh, Freddie Gius, who was one of yep. your client's co-defendants. And I'll never forget that day because when the story came out that Whitey Bulger had been attacked and killed in jail and there was stories out there saying his his eyeballs had been gouged out and, and when, when it was reported that it was Fodius, Freddie Gius, my first reaction was, I can't believe it. My guy ended up doing this. My second reaction was, of course, it was Freddie Gius because of course. He, he was a Freddie dangerous Gius guy. Is the guy who to- told his his friend who had just been made, "You're a made guy. 
Let's go out and kill somebody. He said, right. That's a great idea. He took a <laughs> shovel and hit his brother-in-law in the head and killed him. What craziness. So in that case, which you've just you've just given us a quick preview of the craziness in this case, but this case involved two murders that were completed, a third attempted murder where a guy was shot nine times in the Bronx but lived, and then two other murder conspiracies. So it was five total murders, attempted murders, murder conspiracies. Your client in that case was a guy named Artie Nigro. So yeah. tell us who Artie Nigro was. Artie Nigro was a, a, allegedly... He was uh, the acting boss of the Genovese family. Okay, acting boss meaning what? Allegedly that he was supposed to be the, what it's euphemistic called the godfather. Yeah, okay. And But acting means sort of filling in, right? Filling in because there was other people who were supposed to be, and that's, I will not go into. Yeah, okay. But he was holding the, this, the seat of boss of the Genovese family. Yeah, and he was not, not a boss, the boss. Right, the, there's only one, correct. Yeah, One thing that I found interesting about that case, and I did see really only in the mob world, and you don't see this in other types of cases, is there was never any serious plea talks, right? You you get a narcotics case, uh, a fraud case, and there's going to be plea talks all the way up to the end, and 95% or more of them are going to plead. But there seems to be this ethic in the mafia of you don't even engage the possibility of a plea. So can you tell me, uh, without violating any confidences, about that generally? Well, that's no longer the case, as you can see by the recent cases. But the fact of the matter, at that time, it was generally believed that if you took a plea, you were ratting yourself out. And a rat is a rat is a rat. Mm-hmm. Within the mob, that was the code. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, we charged Artie with orchestrating and ordering and approving, however you want to call it, the murder of a guy named Al Bruno. And just just for our listeners, Al Bruno was a made guy who the Genovese family dispatched up to Springfield, Massachusetts to sort of run the rackets there. Our allegation, the prosecution's allegation, was that for various reasons, um, including that the suspicion that Al Bruno was cooperating and that he was stealing money, our allegation was that your client, Artie Nigro, authorized this hit and it went on down the line. And they ended up recruiting this guy, Frankie Roach, who popped up out from behind a uh, soda machine and shot Al Bruno uh, many times right in the midsection, right in the middle of the street. This case was a little bit tricky because Artie Nigro was, of course, we didn't allege anywhere near the physical scene. We relied on cooperating witnesses who testified this went up to the boss, to Artie, and he authorized it. So tell us a little bit about sort of if you remember your defense in that case, but also more generally, what's your approach when you're cross-examining a cooperating witness who points at your guy and says, he said to do it? This is the unusual thing that occurs in, in the federal court, not in the state court. The uh, the art of the rat. You call him the CI, the confidential informant. You call him the cooperating witness. He's the one who benefits the most. Here is the lie that exists there. The prosecution alleges that the person's cooperating because he wants to rid himself of the burden of being a criminal and change and hopes that the judge finds it in his heart to give him a a sentence, taking into consideration his cooperation. You know that he is expecting not to go to jail, and you know that he will probably not go to jail, notwithstanding in in the 56 years I'm practicing law, I have never seen one of those guys actually go to jail. I remember in the Westchester Premier Theater case, just as an aside, that they had Jimmy Fratiano was the informer who had pled to 19 murders, 19 murders, and didn't do a day in jail in order to get people on a, a fraud. I thought that was rather disingenuous, the best. In Artie's case, you had, I remember the first witness on the stand was some guy who owed money to bookmakers in Florida. I forgot his name. I, I examined him. That was the first witness. Oh, I remember who you're talking about. I can't remember the name and, either. And yes. you know, I knew him because I knew him like every other faker, who, especially bookmakers. He got up there and he concocted the most convoluted story in the world. You guys had to have known it was convoluted. You had to have known it was a lie. And yet you put it forth as if it were the truth. And my client, Artie Nigro, I'm not going to tell you he was a holier-than-thou character. In fact, I was t- stunned that he was an acting boss. Stunned. Because he's a guy, you know, you, I just didn't figure it. And he said, Murray, with all due respect, I've done a lot of things in my life, but what this guy's testified to is bullshit. And I, be- I believe him. 
So let me let me respond to a couple of those things. So first of all, there's no way we believed or knew that a guy was lying and would put him on the stand. Absolutely yeah, I, but, not. But it, it was so beyond anybody who had any experience on the streets would have known. You you guys rely a lot on the FBI guys who really don't have that much street experience. You know, but they got, they're FBI's. Everybody believes FBI. It's a great thing to be. But the fact of the matter is, this guy it, it blew my head off. Anybody with any street experience would have seen what was the, the, the nonsense here. Well, let, let me let, talk about this case. A couple of things. When we talk about cooperating witnesses in general, I disagree with this notion that we try to turn it into this sort of redemption song where he wants to rid himself of a burden and it's this emotional thing and he wants to change his life. I mean, we are very, I was always, I'll say, very clear and explicit with a jury and with the cooperator himself, this is a business deal. I mean, he wants to get his time reduced. We we prepared them to testify. I'm doing this because I'm hoping for a big reduction in time. I remember we even would tell these guys sometimes in preparation, if you're asked by the defense lawyer, because they ask sometimes, how much time do you want to do in jail? The, the answer is wh- however long you want to do in jail. And what's the answer? The answer is zero. I want to get out today. Um, so I was always very clear with cooperators, with judges, with juries, this is business. Now, there's ways you can assess whether the guy is being truthful or not. You can look at the other evidence. And our, and our primary cooperators in that case were the two guys we, we referred to, Anthony Arellata, who was a made guy. He was already sort of right hand in this thing and the main witness against your client. And then Felix Trangis, um, who was a little bit more removed, but also a made guy. I mean, those guys, by the way, they did do several years in prison, both of them too. I want to move on to a couple sort of big picture topics before we wrap up. So let me just put it sort of simply. Do you believe in objective truth? Uh, That's a tough tough thing to say. I quoted in the past the statement by Isaac Bashiva Singer in The Crown of Feathers. And that says the only truth there is, is there is no truth. Truth is subjective. Truth is how you perceive things to be. What I believe in is the truth. What you believe in may not be. Which person who believes in any religion is not subjective in that belief? And which person who believes in any other religion must objectively deny the existence of the truth of that other religion? So it's all, by its very nature, a a rather amorphous term. It's It's like justice. It's like justice. It's in the eyes of the beholder. You know, let, let's face it here. Most most defense lawyers would get on the th- here, here and say, "Oh, uh, nice things about the U.S. Attorney's Office. Nice things about about the, the procedure, the justice system." Maybe I, it's because of my age and the time I have in there and the lack of years ahead as to it. I no longer believe in it. I don't think it's a fair system. I don't think we have manifest justifications to do half the things we do. And I think that the federal system is literally no better than the state system, except it looks nicer. And you have persons who went to better schools. They don't necessarily know more, but they went to better schools. Earlier in your career, did you have more faith in the system? Yes. And what's changed? I tell you, I started this business and getting into the law, believing in truth, justice in the American way. I really, truly believed it. And I was a good, honest kid, really. And I was awed by what I came to see in the criminal justice system. June 15th, 1959, I walked in as a social worker. I had never been to court before, and I was in awe. And I since have gone on, I, I became a lawyer six years later or five and a half years later, and it was a different different view, entirely different view. And I've seen so much of, of, this, of this life. I came into the system believing all the truths I saw the beauty of the court and was most impressed with everything I saw. I was in awe of every judge. I thought the wisdom man spoke from the bench. Then I had an experience. This is shocking. I don't think I've ever publicly said this. I was a young, maybe 21, 22, maybe 23 at most, still not a lawyer. We used to hang around the judge's chambers in between breaks. We'd smoke at the time. I was a smoker. And the DA would hang around there and the judge would hang around there. And there'll be three or four lawyers, maybe three or four prosecutors. And one of the lawyers walks in, drops an envelope on the judge's table, and he says to the judge, this is your spending money for Puerto Rico and the tickets. And the judge says, thanks, Benny. 
and I saw corruption. I was 22 and a half years old. And there's the DA sitting there, and there's everybody sitting there. And I realized that what I believed was not necessarily what it was. And it broke my heart. I didn't even know where to go. I didn't even know who to turn to. I didn't know what to do. And we're talking 60 years ago, 59 years ago. And if you do things long enough and you see things, you know, a federal agent once said to me, I said, well, you have that attitude. He says, well, if you live in dirt, all you see is worms. We live in dirt, at least I do. I'm not saying that my clients are, because I don't feel necessarily, but I think the system by itself is a dirty system. I don't love anybody of anything. I don't love cops or, 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 or criminals. To me, much of them are the same. Do you believe that all of your clients were innocent, and, and does it even matter? No, it doesn't matter. Why not? This is the motto of the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. I'm there as liberty's last champion. I'm the, the breakwater upon which the massive energies of the prosecution has to hit before it gets to my client. I am there to hold off the deluge. Sometimes I'm successful. In fact, if you go by the by score on trials, I'm very often successful. But that doesn't mean a thing. You know that. You're as good as your last trial. Yeah, very true. And, and by the way, thankfully, the, the Nigro trial that we just talked about was the last trial that I actually did. Really? So I, yeah, well, I went on to the AG's office and I was I remember a, a that. Boss, I called so. you to congratulate you. You did. You did. In fact, I was going through some of my stuff recently and I found a really nice note that, that you had sent me. So, uh, And the, the timing was uh, was a great coincidence. And, and speaking of coincidences, I just want to close with this, Murray. I've heard you say before this, this, I think this beautiful thing that your father would say, and you, you've said that your father would say, Moisha, life is a dream. And, and I love that on its own right. But the thing that really catches me is my grandmother who, who passed away 12 years ago or so. She was a Holocaust survivor, Polish Jew put through the concentration camps, came here with nothing, raised my father, Murray. She used to say something very similar. She would say to us, uh, it's all just a blink of an eye. You just you just open your eyes one day and, and there you are and everything that's come before it, it's a blink of an eye. And, and I, I thought, wow, it's a very similar philosophy to Murray, uh, what Murray's father told him. My father was a house painter, not an educated man, but he, he knew. And he said, Moshe, life is a cholom. A cholom means dream. And it's as real as the experiences you've had yesterday. The, whether you had those experiences yesterday or you dreamed those experiences yesterday, the, the effect upon you today is the same. You're shaped by your dreams. You're shaped by your experiences. And in many instances, they're no different. And if you dream high, those dreams can shape your views and shape your identity. Well, Murray, I, I want to thank you for spending the time with me. And it was a real pleasure catching up with you and, and learning about your, I think it's safe to say, uh, uh, one in a million career that you've had. Thanks very much, Murray. Ellie, thank you very much. Well, as you can surely tell, there's so much about Murray that I find fascinating. Not just his war stories about his life as a defense lawyer over many, many decades, which are better than any movie. Not just his humor and his wit and his candor. But Murray also brings some real wisdom and perspective to any discussion of our criminal justice system. He and I don't agree on everything, not even close, as you just heard. I have more faith in our system than he does, and he seems to have lost much of the faith that he did have. God knows he's entitled. He's been at this long enough. I still believe that all or nearly all of the players in our system operate in good faith, do their best, and try to play within the rules. Judges, prosecutors, jurors, and yes, even defense lawyers. Murray, as you heard, is more jaded. He seems thoroughly disillusioned with not just prosecutors, but with the entire process. Murray actually called me the other day just to check in and to say hi. It was great. We caught up and I asked him at one point, are you still working? He said, yeah, of course, but now only two days a week. And, and I asked him, why don't you just retire altogether? Enjoy life a little bit. 
And here's what Murray said to me. He said, this is how I enjoy life. This is what I do. On the next episode of Up Against the Mob, we'll talk with Jack Garcia, an FBI agent who went deep undercover and penetrated the Gambino crime family like few, if any, have ever done before or since. If you saw the movie Donnie Brasco, our next guest is the real deal. That's it for this episode of Up Against the Mob. Thanks again to my guest, Murray Richmond. If you like what you heard, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners to find the show. And as always, please send us your thoughts or questions to letters at cafe.com. Up Against the Mob is presented by Cafe and the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm your host, Ellie Honig. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The technical director is David Tadashur. Music is by Nat Wiener. The cafe team is Matt Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staten, Noah Azulai, and Jake Kaplan. Special thanks to Nate White for his help with research. I'm Ellie Honig, and this is Up Against the Mob. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. 